0: This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash africantech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. It's natural to assume that Alan Knott Craig Sr. paved the way for his son and namesake, Alan Knott Craig Jr., to become one of the most well-recognized personalities on South Africa's tech scene, and while it's impossible to disregard the advantages of having such an experienced and well-connected man for a father, Alan Knott Craig, Jr. has long proved his mettle as a startup founder and gone on to carve out his own success. Prior to founding free Wi-Fi nonprofit Project Isiswe, Alan Jr. founded World of Avatar and served as CEO of Mixit. Prior to that, he was managing director of iBurst as well as chairman of CellFind. At Project TC's where he's currently CEO, he's poised to hand over the reins to Zahir Khan to focus fully on his latest venture, Wi-Fi network startup, Herotel. This is African Tech Conversations.
1: I love my life.
0: Why would you say that?
1: I'm living the dream. So bloody lucky. get to wear what I want to wear when I want to wear it. I get to meet people like you. It's pretty random. What sort of spurred that thought? Is it the coffee you're drinking? Is it the hotel we're sitting in? What is it? I was just in an email conversation with my brother who works in big corporate and I just cannot think of anything worse than having to go to the same place every day, do the same thing every day and have to take orders and not ask any questions. Does he at least enjoy what he's doing? I think he does. I think there's a part of him that enjoys it. I think why he does it is more so that he can fund his, his extramural activities. I mean, it's not for everybody being an entrepreneur, but I love it. I love the, the fact that every day is a surprise.
0: Interesting place to start our conversation today. Thank you so much for speaking to us, by the way, Alan Knott Craig Jr. What's the Double Barrel surname about, by the way?
1: That was really stupid. About five, or four or five generations ago, one of my grandfathers decided to combine uh, you know, the surname of his wife and him. So you ended up with a name like Not Craig, which opened me up to a hell of a lot of abuse at school. Why? Why would people tease you about having a double-barrel name? Well, if I'm Not Craig, who am I? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's really good. There's a lot of abuse you can... Not Craig has a lot of potential. <laughs> and when you're trying to explain that over the phone, ah, it's Ellen Not Craig, they're like, well, if it's Not Craig, who are you? I'm like, well, you know, you're trying to explain it. so It made my life complicated. But on the other hand, there's only one surname called Not Craig. Kind of, a, kind of a branding coup. Yeah, it was genius. You know, come up with something so stupid that nobody else wants to copy it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, your children have 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 you to thank for. Well, we'll be grateful for the for the branding coup. We
1: hope. Yeah, you know. I and mean, as I got older, I realized now it doesn't really matter what people think. But it wasn't that much fun in high school.
0: I want you to think back to the most embarrassing experience of your childhood. It might have been high school. Could have been further back.
1: I mean, I would just generally say that I really didn't like my high school years. I mean, I, always, I met guys at university that seemed to love high school and always talked about all their friends at high school, etc. But I, I couldn't really relate. And I had an infinity of embarrassing moments. I think the one that is probably most palatable is that I got bust drinking alcohol at school, first break. And uh, me and a couple of friends got suspended. And my parents found out, a lot of people found out. You know, it made me quite cool at school, but it wasn't the most proud thing I've ever done in my life. How old were you when that happened? I was 16. I was in Standard Night.
0: And where did you go to school? Where was this happening? Uh, talk me through the sights and sounds of that experience. Where's the school? Uh, which city? Uh, who are
1: your friends? Where do you hang out? Yeah. I grew up in Pretoria, and I went to the Glen High School. It's a government school near Menlin. It's a feeder school for Polesmore. So <laughs> There's not a lot you could do. You know, It was difficult to get expelled. So they couldn't really expel me. There was nowhere to go. And, you know, I just hung out with, a, in retrospect, it was a kind of school where it was difficult not to be sporty. I wasn't particularly sporty, but I wasn't in the wrong crowd, so it wasn't a, an absolute misery of an experience for me. But, um, in retrospect, you know, it wasn't a, the type of environment that uh, always brings out the best in people.
0: How did you survive that environment then?
1: Because it almost sounds
0: like the odds would be stacked against you sort of coming right out of that environment.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I've sent my, I, my daughters are in government school because I, I think it's more real than full-on private school. So, you know, the truth is the world is a bit of a tough place. Um, you get into fights, people are psychologically difficult and there are bullies out there. So you got to, you don't want your kids not to come into the world realising that or knowing how to deal with that. I think the Glen was maybe a little bit extreme and um, and so it had re- extreme results. You know, So people that came out of the Glen either really made it in life or they just became broken and went to jail or got into drugs. The kind of school that the Glen was was just the kind of school where you had to fight. You had to either fight with your fists, and if you couldn't fight with your fists, you had to fight with your mouth. And, and so
0: was the was the reason your parents sent you there for the same reasons you send your children to uh, to pub, uh, to public
1: school? No, I think my folks sent me there just because they couldn't afford to send me to private school. Otherwise, they probably would have sent me to private school, I hope. <laughs> but you know, it was also kind of I could catch the bus from my house there so my mom didn't have to drive me to school in the morning, you know. I'm looking for a file to put that
0: experience in because there are a lot of presuppositions I might have had about your experience, given who your dad is and what we know about him. You're Alan Knott Craig Jr. Your father is, of course, the legendary Alan Knott Craig Sr., um, founder of Vodacom, feisty CEO of c.
1: Did they call you Junior as a kid? No, they called me Alan Thomas. My grandfather's name is also Alan, so I think my dad was Junior. They had to call me Alan Thomas because that was my second name to differentiate. <laughs> so
0: you're like the third? Right,
1: and uh, what is the biggest
0: misconception people have about that association?
1: Well, I mean, I'm not sure what the biggest misconceptions are, but I mean, I know know, my old man had a bursary at the post office. He worked his way up through the post office and telecom, you know, kind of got quite high up. And then in 1994, he was asked to run Vodacom. And he he never owned a share in Vodacom, so I think a lot of people think he owned a stake. He actually never in in his entire life owned a share in Vodacom. But he ran it, and he built it. And there's a lot of money at Vodacom, so people think, therefore, that he had a lot of money. I mean, he really came into money, I think, in the late 90s. Sadly for me, that is after I'd left home. So until then, you know, we didn't have... We were a comfortable middle-class life, but it wasn't um, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I went to University of Port Elizabeth because my old man couldn't afford UCT. So, you know, I was quite... In, in, a, in retrospect, at the time, I felt it was a bit unfortunate to miss the, the ship coming in. But um, in retrospect, it turned out to be great because I didn't grow up... Um, with, with a lot of money in my life, so that gives you an
0: interesting perspective, having grown up the way you did, and having seen your parents come into a standard of living you didn't grow up with wh- what what are sort of the things that stand out for you in terms of wow, that was so profoundly different to how I grew up, and t- where they live now is so profoundly different to how you know where we lived before, and our habits are different, maybe we holiday differently what's what's super different, so think around the time the money started to flow in, and you thought, flip, these guys are actually doing quite well
1: i can't really say i mean i can see my little brother he's five years younger so he certainly had more of uh you know he had a new car and first year type of thing but um you know the thing for me the real big difference is that my whole life i remember switching off the lights when i left the room we used to get clapped by my folks if we didn't switch off the lights if we were wasting electricity and there was a point in time which when that stopped happening so i think it's inculcated into me so i still switch off the lights when i leave a room and that's the big difference you know i grew up thinking about electricity you know
0: What's the best part of now as an adult with at least a decade plus of uh, pretty awesome legacy that your dad has built um, and you sort of walking in its wake? I don't know if that's accurate to say. What is the best part of being Alan Not Craig Jr.? And what's the worst part of being Alan Not Craig Jr.?
1: It's a massive privilege to have a famous name and a famous dad and and somebody who can teach you so much about business along the way. I think the best part is this platform that I've got that I think it's easy to take it for granted, and I, I try not to take it for granted. The worst part is, um, there's no worst part. I mean, everyone's got some shit in their life. I mean, uh, in my opinion, I'm very blessed. I was very lucky to marry a, a, a great girl. And, uh, you know, I've had a few setbacks over the years, so she's still married to me. That means she made me, not my name or my money or anything like that. And, um, and I think, you know, if you, for me, if you marry the right person, then a lot of things kind of take care of themselves. Um, there are, of course, some negatives about having a name. I think people, my, my old man's not perfect, and so maybe some of the imperfections people reflect on to me. I have to make a stand for myself on that.
0: Now have you ever grappled with
1: uh, the pressure to live up to anything he has or hasn't done? I mean, the guy's got an enormous shadow, so it's taken me a long time to come to terms with that shadow and, and, and just actually make the most of that shadow as opposed to pretend it's not there. And, and, and I think in my own right, I'm starting to step out from underneath that. But I don't want to uh, step out from under it, actually. I'm very proud of my father and what he's achieved. And I just hope I can build on top of what he's done. My grandfather grandfather's an editor of a newspaper. My dad's in, been part of the mobile phone revolution. And I like to think I'm part of the mobile internet revolution. So we're all in the same path of, of trying to make information flow more efficiently and, and get it into the hands of everyone. And if I can build on, on what my grandfather and my dad did, that would be great.
0: You know those inspirational speeches you see in movies—you uh, know, th- uh, either a coach or like a general before an army or you whatever, know, given that sort of legacy you just described, do, do you, are there ever moments like that? In your, were there ever moments like that in your household? This is what we need to do. Your grandfather was this. I'm this. You become this. We have such a responsibility to the planet. That kind of thing, or is that just my imagination going nuts?
1: Uh, very much your imagination. Uh, we had nothing cheesy in our in our household. There was no narrative. There was just. Just do what you're told to do. That was basically my life you know, until I was about 25. So I, I I passed, I got out of school because my dad said he'd kill me if I didn't. I went to university because he said he'd kill me if I didn't. I passed university because he said he'd kill me if I didn't. And I did accounting because he said he'd, he'd kill me if I didn't become a chartered accountant. So it was only really at 25 that I had any free will. And, uh, and also my old man hasn't necessarily been the biggest supporter for me being an entrepreneur. I think most parents don't want their kids to get hurt. And they certainly don't want their kids to be a financial burden. And there's a hell of a lot of risk that comes with being an entrepreneur. So my old man's just generally veered me away from that stuff. But I found my own path, um, and uh, I think um, I think it's easy in retrospect to make up some kind of grand narrative, but I, uh, it's not nothing as fancy as that.
0: And so tell me what you know. Your first real success as an entrepreneur, you know, was you know, big or small? That doesn't have to be like a massive success. Um, but what was the? you know, the, the kind of success that made you feel like you could actually do this entrepreneurship thing, like you could actually stop pretending you knew what you, what you were doing, you know, because I went through that with my dad as well, where a great, <laughs> a great percentage of my entrepreneurial experience, I was, I, was, I was sort of trying to convince him that I knew what I was
1: doing when I didn't. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I just listened to a Mark Cuban podcast, and he, and he you know, clearly from a young age wanted to have his own business. And I remembered, like, when I was a kid, I was selling ICs. From grade one to my I used to sell ICs at my school. And in Pretoria in summer, it gets bloody hot. I buy ICs for $0.01 cent and sell them for $0.10. Cent. So there's, I think there's obviously something in me that's a trading mentality. The reason I make money is not to put money in the bank account or in the bath and look at it and wash myself in it. You know, it's, I want to spend money. You know, I'm a spender. And, and in order to spend money, I need to have money. So I've always kind of been trying to put some extra b- uh, bucks in my back pocket. My first business that I started was find. But I didn't start that because I thought I was an entrepreneur. I started that because I couldn't get a job. And, uh, and a guy backed me, gave me some capital. And it was a huge success, financial huge success for me and for other people. But I also felt like, I, I guess, I, in retrospect, I think I still felt like a bit of an imposter. Why? Well, it is in the celloph- uh, cell phone industry. You know. So we were doing uh, location-based services. But, you know, Vodacom's comes a giant in that space. And it was bloody hard. It was actually, I think, harder for me to make a success because of my relationship with Vodacom than it was for a lot of people, but in, still in retrospect, I could never say to myself, well, I mean, imagine my old man hadn't been there. Would, would it, could I have done that? You know. But it was only really with World of Avatar and Mixit that I started believing in myself um, in terms of my own in, innate ability to create new things, although that wasn't a great success. Um, it's this last venture of mine, Project DC's where, which has really given me confidence, really deep confidence that I, that I know what I'm doing and I'm not, a, I'm not an imposter, Imposter. It's not to say that I don't fail, and I'm certainly going to fail in the future. It's just to say that I don't feel like a fraud.
0: And how important is it to you to feel like you know what you're doing? Uh, I guess I'm trying to gauge whether you're a control freak or not. Like, how how important is it for you to feel like you're actually getting it right? Or are you pretty okay with unknowns and sort of figuring things out and that kind of thing?
1: I'm fine with uncertainty, and I'm pretty comfortable with risk. And I'm not a perfectionist.
0: Let's talk about Mixit. Why didn't it work out?
1: Well, you know, we bought it four years ago. I ran it for a year. I didn't make a great success for it whilst I was there. We got a few things wrong, in particular the smartphone user experience. And then they kicked me out. So it's been three years since then, and, and it seems to have kind of kind of died away. So why it didn't work out? Um, I don't think it had very good sov- odds of working out full stop um, from where we where it was in 2011. Uh, we, I thought I thought we had good odds of saving the day when we got hold of it otherwise we wouldn't have bought it um but uh, then and i think it was a combination of of me not not doing the right things early enough and not course correcting fast enough and then um and then partners fighting you know you can't have shareholders fighting in a business it's like children watching their parents fight you know it damages the kids and, and that's what happened um i left so the fighting stopped but the guys couldn't get it right
0: and is there any room, any possibility of sort of Steve, Steve Jobs type return to to the mothership to to sort of bring it, you know, bring it
1: back to its former glory, of sorts? Uh, I don't think so, but never say never. Okay, well, we'll be watching the sky for that phoenix. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not fixed on that. You know, there's uh, Peter Thiel actually says it in his book. Uh, he says, "No man steps into the same river twice." You know. And I think it's important to move on, not to try to fix things in the past and try to get back money that you've lost and try to fix mistakes that you've made. I'm moving on with my life, so I'm having a lot of fun.
0: What else is on that list of things you would never do, do you think? Um, as an entrepreneur, as a as a startup founder, as an advisor in any capacity, What, what what's on that list of that would
1: never be me? I'm fundamentally lazy, I think. You know, I'm, I'm obviously a half a brain. But I'm lazy, so I don't want to be doing the same thing over and over for the rest of my life. So I'm always looking for quicker ways to do things and ways to make money while I sleep. So I think selling hours is not something that would ever be up my alley. I also don't think I really fit into the world of being politically correct. So it doesn't really work for me working in a big organization, saying the right thing.
0: Is that a personality thing or a value you espouse?
1: I think it's a... a, For me... It's nice to say it's a value, but it's actually just a personality thing, which I now project as a value. But the you know, the overriding uh, uh, my ethos, my life philosophy around what I should do and what I shouldn't do is, can I tell my kids about it? I mean, it's, it's really come down to that. Can my kids read about it in the newspaper? Because they're going to read about it on the internet one day. And so the types of products I sell, the types of people I do business with, the types of industries I want to work in, those things are very much determined by, in that moment in time, this is something I can tell my kids about. If it's not, then I'm not going to do it.
0: Let's talk about your family a little bit. What what do they think you do? How, firstly, I know you've got three children. You've got three daughters, am I right?
1: And as far as they're concerned, what does Daddy do? A couple of years ago, when I had my mix-it set back, my daughter, who was four at the time, um, told her teacher that Daddy's going to America to go fetch money because we've run out of food. We had run out of food. The fridge was empty. My wife hadn't done the shopping. And I was going to America, but just to really take a break. <laughs> she hadn't put two and two together, so... I'm not really sure they're conscious yet of what I'm, what I'm into. My wife uh, makes educational apps for children, so, and they're always playing with those apps. So my, They definitely know what my wife does. They're not, they're not quite aware of what Wi-Fi is just yet. But I must say, you know, if I want to punish my children, I, I take away the Wi-Fi and I make them watch TV.
0: <laughs> Tell me uh, how you met your wife. I'm curious because um, I read somewhere that um, you believe entrepreneurs should marry young. And you obviously said earlier that you feel quite lucky that you met someone amazing. I happen to to be in the same boat. You know, it's pretty awesome. And um, I'm curious to know how you met your wife and how old you were
1: you? Uh, we met in Articles, Deloitte. I was 22. She was 22. And, um, yeah, she was way above my pay grade. But luckily it was a captive audience. She couldn't really escape. She had to come to work every day. And she had to see me. And so, and we got married when we were 25. So it's been 13 years this year. But, um, how soon did you have children after you married? No, uh, we waited about six years, and then we were married six or seven years before we, we had kids. So we had a good good run, but we had you know, kids fairly young for our age as well. And, I mean, I think uh, th- I'm on the record for 100 reasons why getting married uh, young, particularly getting married young, is a really good idea for entrepreneurs, which is counterintuitive. But um, if nothing else, the reason you want to get married young is so you can get divorced young.
0: Oh no! Don't say that. Because I was hoping you were kind of. Like, I, I I happen to believe people should marry young. Because my only regret is not having met my wife earlier, uh, or sooner. Except that she probably would have met the wrong me. You know? <laughs> so maybe that wouldn't have worked out. But you really think it, you should a- approach it the way you would a startup? Start it early in case
1: it crashes, and then you you know you've got time to sort of put yourself to get, uh, get yourself together. I really do because I really don't think. Well, me personally, I was completely unconscious of the risks I was taking when I was getting married. And you really don't know what you're getting married to until you get married. So, you know, rather than theorize about it and think about it and talk about it and fantasize about it, just do it and course correct if you've made a mistake. But, you know, if you read a lot of, uh, about um, wedding rituals around the world, you'll find that most uh, the lowest divorce rates in the world are amongst deranged marriages. And so when you go into marriage thinking it's not about uh, romance, it's just about a partnership. Then you'll make it work, and um, and so again, it's you know if you get married and you want to be married, you'll stay married. So it doesn't matter how, whether you love them or not. It all of that stuff doesn't really matter. I was I was very lucky. I, I met my soulmate. We got married, and we've managed to stick it out. I was reading recently some
0: sti- uh, statistics into how uh, marriage actually improves the odds of success in various forms of life. Apparently, married people do better career-wise. Um, they make more money, they, they're more effective, they're less stressed. Obviously, insu- the insurance industry loves it because you, you, you're you far less risky to insure and that kind of thing. What do you think it is about marriage that
1: might make you a better Alan? Focus. So, if you want to be an entrepreneur, well, if you're like me, who I'm semi, I've got a semi-Asperger's kind of, I'm, I've, I'm unemployable, I've got a tension deficit order, i like doing lots of things at the same time. You know, if you're in that kind of category, you need to be trying to change your environment so that you can maximize your focus because you're struggling to focus all the time so one of the biggest distractions you're ever going to have is the mating instinct you know like if you're like oh who am i going to come right with tonight and tomorrow night and next night and uh, i'm going to excuse someone no, no. and WhatsApping and flirting and the hangovers that come with going out at night and being tired because you got to bed late and all of that stuff just gets removed from the equation the moment you've picked a partner and you said this is my chick or my guy and off you go so it's allowed me to focus. It's taken a lot of my energy and allowed me direct to direct it at business.
0: And living with four women, you must have a unique perspective on issues surrounding diversity and, and <laughs> gender equality in the workplace. Uh, w- how do you see things? I mean, you met your wife in a, in a professional environment. She's obviously very skilled, uh, very talented individual. Your children see very different uh, Relative to many children, I think your children might be exposed in the two of you to a, a worldview that others aren't Wh- What have you sort of what what sort of thoughts come to mind around those issues for you uh, living with four women?
1: <laughs> I don't know you know, my, I'm, it's, I think they're too old too young to really have an informed view on gender diversity, but what I can see with my kids is um, they're making me a better person. They make me slow down a little bit, they make me pay attention to people because I have to concentrate on them you know you can't be what's happening whilst you talk to your children and um, and they they give me perspective so if I have a bad day I get home kids are happy they don't judge me they, they don't actually care what I've done I've they just want to tell me about their day and um, and you can see there's a lot of randomness in the whole thing and the whole path of life just seems a little bit random so you take things a little bit personally and that helps you get you know remain humble when things go really well because you realize there's a lot of luck involved so
0: but isn't it really a man's world still? I mean, do do you worry about what sort of world your children will, will be able to sort of chase their dreams and, and what limitations innate or otherwise might be in their path just because they're, they're women?
1: You know, I just hope my kids don't come into the world thinking the world owes them anything, you know? And so if you come from a minority background or you come from, if you're a girl in a, in a corporate or whatever, the temptation is to think because everyone's telling you this, that you've been prejudiced against, et cetera, that you have this sense of entitlement. I think there are a lot of people fighting the good fight, and uh, there's no doubt that if we don't have affirmative action, the demographics, the racial demographics of South Africa won't change in, in business. If we don't give women an opportunity in leadership positions, they won't change, because guys would just rather work with guys. So I believe in all of that, and those fights are being fought. But in 20 years, when my kids enter the workforce, I think it's going to be a much better place for, for girls to operate. But I just don't want... The worst thing that that could ever happen to a person is for them to start believing the world owes them something the world owes you nothing you have to earn everything you get
0: we're taking a quick break to remind you of audible's pretty awesome offer to you a listener of the african tech conversations podcast they're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service personally i recommend good strategy bad strategy by richard but you can pretty much download any audiobook of your choice for free by trying audible.com to download your free audiobook today go to audibletrial.com/africantech that's audibletrial.com/africantech now back to the conversation how important is caring about the ventures you pursue and uh, you know you mentioned that you're lazy uh, <laughs> that you essentially um uh in part work to uh, uh to sort of achieve a, a level of comfort in life that you desire, and and working is an almost necessary thing. Um, so, how much of what you decide to do is a pursuit in that specific to that specific end, and how much of it is, I need to get up because the world needs me, etc.
1: Well, I think if you really want to chase your dreams, you need to be financially independent. Um, and I once had a, I was lucky enough to have dinner with Paul Gates. so I asked him the question. I said, you know, hello, Bill, what's the magic number? You know. And he said, it depends on if you want a boat or not. If you need the boat, it's $100 million. If you don't need a boat, it's $10 million. So, you know, I don't need a, a toys. Um, so I think, you know, that's 140 million rand. You know, you need that in cash. So that's all is my driving ambition is just to get to a point where no one, I don't have to work, I don't have to worry about money. I can send my kids to a decent school. They can go to university. I can go on overseas holiday every night again. That's all I want. But uh, what gets me out of bed in the morning is always is m- making sure that Regardless of whether I'm making money or not, I'm making a difference because most businesses fail. And if you've got nothing to show for it uh, money-wise, at least you want to have some impact. So everything I'm involved in at the moment is moving the needle in somewhere way or another for people, for rich people, poor people, black people, white people. doesn't matter who it is, but it's making a difference. Um, and it also has a chance to make money. You know. And so let's take Project 2 for example uh, – I guess I want to ask if you actually care
0: about the rhetoric we hear constantly about how the internet is a basic human right and um or are you in fact just a cold blooded capitalist riding that popular you
1: know sentiment um all the way to the bank? I wouldn't say i'm a cold blooded capitalist i mean i'm I'm a capitalist with a conscience yeah but you know, i want I want to live in South Africa in fifty years and I want my daughters to live in South Africa when they're eighty and um you can't look around and think to yourself, we're going to have a country 50 years from now that you can live in. Honestly, you can't really look around, and see the inequality, and think to yourself, this is sustainable. So, for very selfish reasons, the last five years or so, I've been consciously trying to think about how we bridge the digital divide. Started with Avatar and Mixit, and now it's with Project DC'sware. And so, Project DC'sware is actually a non profit, and we help the government make Wi Fi available within walking distance of everyone in poor communities. And yes, it's very difficult to make money like that. I can get paid a salary, but you can't get rich like doing that. But, but it also just makes sure there's a country in which I can make money. You know, what's the point in trying to make money for 10 years when there's nothing, no country left to live in? I'd rather, you know, do what I can at the moment just to see what I can do if I can make a difference. And, and at least there's something, to a place to live in and, and an economy to do business in. So it's, I mean, it's very sincere. Everything I'm doing is very sincere. But it's also sincerely selfish. It's for me and My kids, I just want to live here, you know, and the only way we can live here is if we deal with inequality. and what do you say to
0: skeptics who can't see past the apparent capitalist self-interest in, you know and, and just i mean let, let's use Facebook, for example. I mean with their bid uh, uh, to make you know the internet available for all and um, their project around internet now called free Basics. do you sometimes find yourself lumped together with the likes of Mark Zuckerberg by
1: skeptics who question your motives and and question his? That's a good question. I, I don't know. You know, It wasn't like we had a business and we were using that business to then fund internet access. This really came from a vacuum. So I'm not sure it's the same boat necessarily. I do, I do find it find very, very irritating when people criticize a guy who's trying to help people. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's worth like $50 billion. He gives 90% of his wealth to charity. Everyone says he's just doing it for tax reasons. But when he's got $50 billion and he's not giving it to charity, everyone says he's selfish. So I just, I just ignore the noise a lot of people in the world have got nothing better to do than pull people down so at the end of the day um words are wind action is everything so if if facebook effectively gets people on the internet well then they've made a difference if they don't then it is just noise and i think for instance google balloons is just noise that's just bullshit because nothing's actually happening there i've been talking about forever um uh, it's too early to say whether uh, internet.org is is action or, or just talk and how much time do you think people should spend thinking about issues
0: around access and inclusion and question? You're sort of trying to look into what constitutes true access and well, what tr- constitutes true inclusion and whether you know we're actually reaching the mark.
1: Are those even
0: inc- important questions in your mind? If you, or, or is it for you, get something done, make you know, make a difference, add. How, how do you think about these issues? Do you think of them at all, or is, is it really just down to, you know, getting done what you think
1: is, ne- is necessary? I'm I just trying to mind my own business. People must do what they've got to do, you know?
0: How, how do you think that way when you have to do so, when your projects, project issues, in, in, involve sort of connecting with people on the sort of more subjective level? Or does it? Or maybe there's something about how you sort of engage with government to get projects like Project Decezor off the ground that I might not understand.
1: Um, I, don't, I don't want to force my mission down anybody's throat. And, uh, you know, my mission is everyone in South Africa within a walking distance of free Wi-Fi, you know. So you've got two ways to approach that. You either, you know, shout to people and instruct people and order people and criticize people and, and you know, you try... Shame people into doing what you're doing, what you want them to do. Or you just say, well, this is what we're doing. Who's with me? Uh, it's like Jerry Maguire with the goldfish, you know, walking out the building. You know, it's like, who's with me? And, and one girl walks with him and everyone leaves him alone. You know, in our case, we did that and one person put up their hand and it was the city of Chwani, Mayor Ramkhope, and he says, I'm with you. And our, uh, Chwani is the biggest municipal public Wi-Fi network on the continent of Africa, right? And in 2017, everyone will be in walking distance. No other municipality has done that yet. Uh, no real provincial administrations done that yet uh, no national departments done that yet um, do i want them to do it sure i'd love them to do it do i, do I give them books and emails and, and infographics yeah i'll just make sure they can't say they didn't know about it but i'm not going to force anybody to do it um if the leaders of our country want think that internet access will deal with inequality then they'll copy chwani if they don't then they won't but for me we're doing stuff already so it doesn't really matter
0: Tell me more about the differences in organizational focus between Project to and your new role at uh, at Herotel. Uh, w- what the difference is. Obviously, uh, Project to is a
1: not-for-profit organization, Herotel is. Um, what's the difference? Uh, well, I mean, so I'm handing over all operational reins for ECSWare to my partner, Zahir Khan. And, uh, it's, you know, Seaswear is such a big success now that it's, it's too big for me to touch. I'll break it, you know. You shouldn't give me really big things because my tendency is to roll the dice. Um, Hero is much more of a startup, and uh, for the next two years, it's going to be make or break. I think it's got a lot of potential, um, but I'm going to be spending a lot more time, not really hands-on, but but at a high level, making sure that we do everything right um, for Hero to you know, become a, a very big broadband player in South Africa. So Talk me through the model. How will this startup, how does this startup intend to make money? Well, the customers are going to be small businesses and households looking for broadband. So, if you want to get fiber to your house, or ADSL to your house, or wireless broadband to your house, you know, we want Hero to be one of those options for you. You know, and um, and we're not going to reinvent the wheel. Uh, so, we're just going around and buying these wireless, uh, in these existing wireless internet service providers. They already make profit. So, you pay a guy five hundred rand a month. He puts a little dish on your wall, connects to the internet, ten megs per second, and he makes you know one hundred and thirty rand profit per month. So that's you know, it's just cash. It's just a real business. It's not, uh, it's not a dream. It's a real business with real cash flows. And I think if you if you roll them all up together, then you get this enormous economy of scale that you can apply to bandwidth costs and to um, equipment costs. And honestly, I think at the back of my mind, I always think about a CISWARE. What plan B does a CISWARE have? Right now, you know, if government stops backing internet access, then a CISWARE is going to fizzle out. And I'd, I'd like to build Hero into something really big that it can actually support a through the lean times, you know?
0: How frustrating was that while you were at the helm of uh, Project Disease, Week, relying on public funds? Uh, given everything you've described about your your sense of independence, must have been frustrating. There is no
1: shame in being dependent on people and being vulnerable and needing help. And you know, there's no shame in that. I think my stress is never caused by having to tick boxes or fill out forms or go through process or come to meetings or, or be kept waiting or whatever. You know, it's it's not. That, for me, is just the game. That's what that's work. Uh, there's only one stressful thing in the world, and that's dealing with people you don't want to deal with and or having to take a phone call from someone you don't want to talk to. And so my golden rule is that I just stay clear of those types of uh, relationships. And I'm very lucky in the relationships we have with the various customers we have that they're very nice people that I deal with. You know?
0: And on our sister podcast, The African Tech Roundup, my co-host, Def Mohapi, and I debated w- whether or not mobile telcos... Um, will be rendered obsolete in the next decade or so. (laughs) So it was an interesting debate we had some weeks ago. Can you imagine a world without mobile uh, operators? If so,
1: why? And if not, why not? No, it's it's impossible. It's part of the fabric. So the mobile operators will be around forever. They'll always generate a lot of cash. I think the days of 25% operating margins are gone. Uh, They just don't know that yet, which is why they're fighting. But... um, Eventually, it'll just be whittled down to, you know, utility pricing. You know, German, Deutsche Telekom makes a 1.5% operating profit margin. Uh, in South Africa, the, the average is 25%. Is that because South African companies are more efficient than German companies? I think not. So that, that's where the runway is. You know, that's where it's going. It's the glide path. But the big waves hitting these telcos, is that they, don't, uh, they can't fight as it's going from voice to data revenues. Um, LTE is very much being complemented by Wi-Fi and sometimes being superseded. And people are moving from contract to prepaid. So those are waves that can't be stopped. And the telcos that get that first will win the race.
0: And what do you make of um, South African telcos fight uh, or lobby, uh, attempt to lobby against or lobby for the regulation of OTTs like WhatsApp and so on?
1: Conscious evil or blind stupidity. I mean, it's just moronic when when I read those things. So, like what? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm actually not a big fan of net neutrality. I mean, I just think if you've put the money into the ground, you get to decide what goes through the pipes. But to think you can manage OTT is, like, really stupid. Um, and it's not a competitive advantage. All you've done is differentiate yourself against your competitor in a bad way. So, uh, you know, maybe if you had a monopoly, you can manage OTT, like they do in China and North Korea, but South Africa doesn't have a monopoly environment. There's competition, so it's just stupid.
0: Isn't part of the problem that um, the legacy... Um, assets that need to be sweated you've got shareholders that expect a certain level of performance they enjoy the margins they've had for decades uh how do you fix that and how do you fix leadership that essentially thinks four years at a time
1: it's a very good question i'm not sure i think sab are about to find out because sab is a very successful business very happy place to work for a very long time but they run at 24 percent operating margins and uh those guys those brazilians who are running the budweiser show are running at 38 percent, and i promise you that's not uh, luck that's just cu- cutting costs and a ruthless culture around profitability so i mean the honest truth is it would probably require complete change in management um or existing management just waking up and doing what well has to be done you know because if they don't do it somebody else will come and come and do it for them you know what do you make of all the risk slaps and pushback mobile
0: operators are getting on the continent? You've got MTN in Nigeria, uh, and Uganda both having all sorts of problems. Firecom in Kenya, Vodacom in the DRC, Econet in Zimbabwe. Have they been doing business in a way that's been less than virtuous? And are they paying the price?
1: I don't know if they I don't know what they're doing in those countries. I think business in those countries is really difficult. But it doesn't matter what country you are in the world, if you're reliant on the government for something, you are at risk. And you know, telecoms companies sometimes rely on Licensed spectrum, and then you're at risk. So at my company, Herotel, one of its basic premises is that we don't rely on spectrum. So we're not going to expose ourselves to government risk.
0: And in my view, there's basically two tiers of, of tech on the on the continent. There's the massive tech, you know, the the I think the mo- sort of the mobile telcos fit that sort of this untouchable listed firms that are doing ridiculously large business, a huge margin. And then there's this little tech ecosystem we like to believe we have. Uh, you know, that's sort of trying to, you know, make make something of itself. Wh- what do you make of the tech ecosystem on the continent? Wh- what what uh, what sort of stands out to you? It, it, is the way I've just described it sort of accurate, or what
1: do you what do you sense? Uh, so, I just differentiate. I think there's telecoms companies which are big infrastructure players which are highly risky, but once they established, they never die. Um, that's the mobile operators. And then you've got um, tech companies, which are really the web the web startups and uh, you know all that stuff, tech stuff, and then you've got media players, which you know I guess something like your podcast would be um, and it's the intersection of all of those where the opportunity lies, but you know we're still in the phase of rolling out connectivity so it's uh, you just can't you can't expect uh, Africa to produce Facebook if ninety nine percent of is not on the internet you know so it's only once we have a big enough local market. Uh, that we can support local uh, tech giants the way China supports its local giants and America supports its local giants, that we can ever expect to have some kind of national um, story that can ex- be exported. I mean, Mixit was as close as we got. Where does Herotel sort of feature in your mind? Herotel is telecoms. It's infrastructure. It's plumbing.
0: So we should expect a listing, hopefully, in the next decade or so or less. Hopefully before then. I,
1: mean, I don't know. Hopefully we don't list. Hopefully we we'll just sell to some big guy because we'll whack at cash and I'll just spend to the sunset. You know, but Or maybe we buy somebody, you know? But uh, it's very hard to make money as a telco, to get into an established market. But if you can, you make a lot of money for a long time. And I'd rather build my future empire, if you want to call it that, off the back of a cash car um, and then get into the more risky kind of apps, etc. than the other way around.
0: And so how, how are you doing this with Herotel? How, what sort of investment structure have you, have you engaged to, to build this dream?
1: Well, we've got a new company called Herotel. It's about a year and a half old. We raised money in April 2014, got some individuals in. We used that cash, bought up a couple of companies, proved the model. Then we just raised some cash now. Are you allowed to say how much? Uh, We just raised 21 million at a valuation of 140. Is that Rand? Yeah. On paper, we're now valued at 400. So, you know, it's not a bad business. And it's not uh, users or clicks or anything, it's like cash flow. Um, So, pretty good business, I think. And and pretty much a monopoly business, you know. So once you've once you owned the distribution, no one gets in there unless you mess it up. So that's kind of what we re, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to like, you know, consolidate last mile distribution to households.
0: What sort of trends excite you the most in terms of a business? So two things in, in terms of a business potential and in terms of social impact, in terms of tech and the opportunities. Um, which sort of areas excite you?
1: The most exciting uh, space. In Africa, is helping the government solve its problems, because the government's the biggest part of the economy of Africa. And does
0: that tick both boxes—business, uh, uh, uh,
1: essentially business potential and social impact? Yes, I mean government. Unless you're trying to solve the problem of helping corrupt people get their money offshore, which I'm not going to try and solve, then you're generally trying to solve a problem of housing, or moving money around, or uh, loans for the poor, or solving crime, or Better communication, or whatever you know, there's like a hundred things that the government's trying to do to make a difference and boost the economy and make, it, and uh, you know, make the lives of citizens better. That you can use technology to help with that, and the private sector can do that. But the government's got the money and it's got the scale and it's got the kind of uh, legitimacy. So you know, I think startups in Africa that are helping government solve problems are gonna they're going to be the ones that succeed. And so,
0: how do you narrow down for yourself? Which opportunities you should spend time on or build into, or build a model around or just, you know, throw yourself at?
1: Well, I mean, me personally, I kind of throw a lot of... I'm doing a lot of things and whatever gets traction, I'll throw all my energy into. So it sees we've got a lot of traction, I'm throwing all my energy into that. Now Hero's getting traction, I'm throwing all my energy into that. We've got a couple of other little startups, software kind of things. They're bubbling along and I've got great partners that run those things. So um, just generally, I think the rule of thumb should be... you should should have a few irons on the fire but whatever catches fire a bird in hands with two in the bush drop everything else pick one thing finish it and when that's finished then you move to the next thing
0: but some people get more effective the more they do you're not one of those people
1: i don't think that's true for anyone in the world you don't think so Uh, i just think focus is the most important thing for every entrepreneur i've ever heard of they will always tell you sex success is a function of focus so it's not to say you can't have lots of irons in the fire I still have lots of things in the fire but I wake up every morning and I think about one thing and I sort of all of those things uh, all matters pertaining to that one venture before I move on to anything else and if you're not doing it like that then I mean I've made the mistake before in my career where you just you just make you know you'll lose money you'll fail
0: and so tell me uh, are you an angel investor do you invest in in smaller guys do you sort of just see
1: potential are you impulsive in that respect I used to be I used to be emotional impulsive uh, egotistic very much an angel investor, but uh, I don't do that anymore. I only back my own ideas now. Well, I back jockeys, but only in stuff that I buy into. Not, uh, it's very rare that somebody can bring me an idea that I'd sign up for.
0: Any runaway successes you can sort of point to
1: or <laughs> shocking defeats? <laughs> well, I'm pr- proud of SnapScan. I mean, SnapScan was, was mixed money. Um, and, and just after I was ejected, they were ejected, and then became SnapScan. So I, th- you know, I consider... I feel proud to have played a small role in the very beginning of that. I didn't do any of the work, and the guys that did it deserve all the credit. But, you know, that was something small where we saw an opportunity and got them on a platform. I've got so many failures, I I mean, I could bore your ears off. But, um, but, you know, I found uh, 27 ways that don't work.
0: (laughs) And so I'd imagine, given what you believe about focus, one of the things you might be looking for in and anyone you might bet on in any respect, is
1: focus? You have to have focus. That's what you want. You want a, you want a guy who's smart, hard hardworking, he has got integrity, but that's focused and, and putting his, all his energy into one thing, you know? And it maybe that's, like in my case, I'm not definitely putting all my energy into one thing, but what I'm very good at is finding one person who's all, all ticks all those boxes and is putting all their energy into that one thing. So it gives comfort to people who invest in me that someone's concentrating 100% on their money, and, and I would do the same, you know? Let's talk about Tell. You
0: mentioned in passing that you guys
1: are effectively a monopoly.
0: H- how is that so? Um, and I, and if you're a monopoly for this region, who who are your competitors here or elsewhere in the world?
1: No, we're not. Look, we wouldn't be on a monopoly uh, per se. You know, monopoly means you're, you own 100% of the market. But what you want to do is own 100% of your customers. You don't want to have risk that your customer is dealing with other, you know, you want to be married to one person, you want to make sure that girl's are not talking to other guys. And so, you know, once you put a pipe into somebody's house, whether it's a wireless pipe or a fiber pipe or whatever pipe, it's fixed. I mean, not, they aren't, people aren't going to put multiple links into their house. Uh, and that's the part where it appeals to me. Heratel appeals to me because it's about putting physical infrastructure into people's households so that you can deliver content.
0: What's stopping a bright upstart uh, anyway in Africa right now copying and pasting that model and, and taking
1: you on? Well, it just sounds a little easier than it is. It's a great idea. The reason it's a great idea is because no one can do it. I think I've got a team that can do it, and we are doing it. So I can tell everybody my strategy, and I do tell everybody my strategy. And I look at some foolish people out there trying to copy me, but they don't know what they're doing, so they're going to lose money. It's going to make it easier for us to to do what we've got to do.
0: What uh, technologies on the fringes of what it is you're doing right now have the potential to disrupt you over time, do you think?
1: Uh, there are so many technologies that can disrupt broadband. So our basic core strategy is we don't invest in anything that we can't write off in the first year, which is one very big difference between what guys are doing in fiber and LTE, etc. You know, an LTE network has to be paid back over five years. What happens if in two years something changes and you've got to write that network off and start again? So we, we just cost of sale everything. Um, if, if we can't build network that we make money in the first year, we don't do it.
0: I'm going to ask you to put your futurist cap on and predict which business models and or companies within tech you think aren't going to make make it through the next 15 years. Totally bite dust.
1: That's, that's like a bit unfair. I mean, I,
0: You'd hate for someone else to say this about you. Let's talk models then, perhaps not specific companies.
1: Say, I think anybody that's entering a network effects business that's established is going to fail. doesn't matter how much money they got. doesn't matter how good they are. So when I see an OLX in South Africa, I think that's going to fail. When I see a WeChat in South Africa, I think that's going to fail. When I see... Anybody trying to take on classified ads or online auctions or social networks or financial services that are already established, I think to myself, there's just ego going in there because they clearly don't understand the network effects and you just can't break those network effects. So Is know, this for South Africa or Africa at large? The whole world. It applies to the whole world. And and so, you know, me personally, I take the money that I never want to lose and I invest in Amazon and Facebook. They're never gonna die. They're gonna be around for the next hundred years making monopoly profits. Um, and I never want to start a business that ever competes with those two companies because you'll never beat them. So I'd rather just... So I think the innovation will come in spaces that we haven't thought of yet. And I mean, one thing that we've started right now is uh, it's something called Namola, which connects... It's an app that lets you report crime to your nearest police cars. And there's a tablet in every police car. It's like Uber. Um, your, your location gets shared with the cop and he accepts the ride comes straight to you. So that's like Uber for the cops, for emergency services. And that's a vacuum. No one's doing that. So that's something worth going into, because I'm not fighting anybody to do that. And it's a, a 13 times improvement on existing technology, which is call centers. So that's something worth a try. But uh, if there wasn't a vacuum, I wouldn't be doing it. And how, how do you feel about the general Uberization of everything <laughs> out there? I think that is the, that is the, that's what people have been saying about the Internet for 20 years. The Internet is about making the system more efficient, about connecting the dots, about sweetening existing infrastructure. And Uber just does that. It connects the dots makes things more efficient. sweats existing infrastructure. just makes everyone's life easier and doesn't require a hell of a lot of infrastructure investment. It's just about saying we've got all this stuff out there already. How do we make sure that it gets used more efficiently? And Airbnb is the same. Hopefully Nomola is the same. And that's the future. That's the power of the internet.
0: Who do you model your your entrepreneurial sort of vibe around, do you think? I mean, you mentioned Mark Cuban as someone you, 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 heard of, you were listening to on a podcast the other day. And...
1: Look, the guys that resonate with me are, I love Steve Jobs. I love that guy. Um, Jack Ma is another entrepreneur, the Alibaba guy. I love him. I mean, everything he says resonates with me. I really like Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. I really like Krista Visa, Funny enough. Uh, great entrepreneur. What a great success story. I like Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner. I like Herman Mashaba's story. Um, so, you know, those are the guys that are, but I haven't necessarily found one guy that ticks all my boxes, you know. That's great, and I'm sure you'll be glad to know it's downhill from here. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know what. I don't care if it's uphill or downhill. So I'm enjoying the ride. Yeah.
0: Okay, good. Let's hope you are. <laughs> a couple of quick uh, fire questions. Walk or run? Always run. Mark Zuckerberg's donation, touching or token? But you sort of answered this earlier. Touching. Uh, text or call? Text. Uh, what do you do to relax? Read a book. Uh, and what are you reading right now?
1: Zero to One by Peter Thiel. How's that going? Yeah, it's confirming some of the things I knew about and also teaching me some new stuff. And are you into podcasts? If
0: so, what are you listening to right now? You probably are because you mentioned you have a referenced one. What are you listening to right now?
1: Well, for me, though, my favorite podcast is How to Start a Startup by the Y Combinator Group. I'm going to
0: need to um, gently encourage you to check out ours as well. Uh, if you're not already into it, uh, especially now that you're going to be <laughs> one of our uh, our alumni. And uh, final question, is there a question I haven't asked perhaps that you wish I had or think I should have? What's the future of South Africa? All right then, I'll humor you. What is the future of South Africa, Alan Craig Jr.?
1: Short term, difficult. Long term, never been better. That's fantastic, is that it? I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're young and you're willing to take a bit of risk and you can deal with uncertainty, then you are going to find the next 10 years are the most exciting times in the whole world and South Africa is going to be the best place to be living. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks very much for having me. We'd like
0: to thank Audible for sponsoring this week's episode of African Tech Conversations. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android or MP3 player, including my recommendation, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummelt. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial right now at audibletrial.com africantech That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.